according to his promise, we are looking for new, he- new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Leviticus. This is our first Sunday in Leviticus. All four hours are Levitical here today, as well as all the midweek services in the coming week, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. We continue in Leviticus. And, uh, and then we wrap it up next Sunday morning with two Leviticus uh, hours and then two hours of the book of Numbers. We finally escape Leviticus one week from today uh, during the lunch break. We'll come back in the afternoon for the two afternoon sessions. Uh, next week we'll be done with uh, Leviticus. But for now, we're still in the midst of the blessings as we are learning to love Leviticus. I, I mean it. We're learning to love Leviticus, okay? Because I have not loved it up, to, up until now, and it's part of God's Word, and I should love it. It should be, it might even rise. Right now, it's, it hasn't made my top 65 yet, but it might. It might climb to the 65th or 64th spot even, depending on what happens here when we're done. And then, sad to say, Obadiah is going to be uh, in need of some promotion as well down the road. But, all right. <laughs> Last hour we were in chapters uh, 7 and 8. Today, uh, this hour we are in chapters 9, 10, and 11. This is the recording for day 52. Day 52, the priestly work and conduct. We saw the priests being ordained. Now we're going to see them begin their service, and we're going to see the first failure that takes place here in Leviticus chapter 10. So before we do get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time in the truth, shall we pray. Almighty Father, we come before you this morning once again, thankful for your grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness. And Father, calling upon your faithfulness to open our eyes, uh, open our ears, soften our hearts. And Father, we, we identify with the fact that Leviticus deals with a priesthood we do not have. That was for them back in the day. But Father, them back in the day were functioning under the shadows. And we function in the substance, the reality. And so we can't ignore the shadows. We need to understand what they were and what they signified so that we don't miss out on what we are supposed to be operating in in our service for Jesus Christ as New Testament believer priests in Christ. So Father, uh, open our eyes, bless us, bless this study. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so it came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. The ordination process was a full week. It was a full seven days that they were consecrated, that they were set apart, that they were going through the, uh, the uh, consecration and ordination procedures. Aaron and his sons entered into their priesthood on the eighth day and began their work of service. So Moses calls them and he says to Aaron, "'Take for yourselves a calf, a bull, for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering.'" both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. Well, wait a minute. What's up with a sin offering? What kind of sin did Aaron do in those seven days? Okay? I don't think he did any sin in those seven days. That's not the point. Okay? We've got to stop thinking of these offerings as the consequences of their personal sins, okay? because that's not the case. Uh, we have to stop thinking about the animal ritual as the equivalent of 1 John 1, 9. That when I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I can do that 10 times a day, 20 times a day. I can do that 200 times a week. And no animals need to be butchered, right? 
Because as I said last week, just one drive down Highway 183 would cost at least two bowls of ram and a goat, I'm thinking, on most, on most afternoon commutes. But these are animal rituals that are dying in order to teach the doctrine. And the doctrine is sinners are approaching the holy God. And it requires death for a sinner to approach a holy God. And there are doctrines and promises and principles contained in these rituals that we don't want to lose track of. And in particular, it's, it's the idea of clean versus unclean, not the idea of spiritual versus carnal. Okay? Clean versus unclean. A ritual people that is clean in their standing before the Lord. Or unclean, as the case may be. And so this is what we're dealing with here. Now, So take a a calf, a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. Then to the sons of Israel you shall speak, saying, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both one-year-old without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you going to be a special day, all right? So all these offerings are to be offered by the priests, by the people, corporately, okay? So they took what Moses had commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and the whole congregation came near and stood before the Lord, all right? That's either three million people or a smaller number of people, but all of them are standing before the Lord at the eastern side of the tabernacle, standing before that gate, as the tabernacle was oriented from east to west, moving through. So, Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. The covenant people, the earthly people of God, they are a redeemed people. Whether or not, you know, obviously I don't think everybody that walked through the Red Sea had personal salvation. There were unbelievers in Israel and they walked through the Red Sea just like the believers walked through the Red Sea. I suspect many of them maybe became believers as they were walking through the Red Sea. But maybe not. Okay, Don't confuse the fact that a redeemed people is telling the picture of a redeemed people. That's us. Okay, We're born again. We're saved. We're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and in the church age, everybody that's redeemed is saved because it's their equivalent terms in the church age. We're redeemed. We're saved. We have eternal life. We're going to go to heaven when we die. We're baptized in the union with Christ. We're believers. We're redeemed. We're saved. Now in the Old Testament... Don't lose the, the, the typology here because in the Old Testament you could have a body of redeemed people, they're the Jewish people. And every last one of them was brought out of Egypt but that doesn't mean every last one of them had eternal life or that they were saved. Okay, And then they wandered through the wilderness and then they entered into the promised land. These are shadow doctrines. The typology is painting the picture but the, the reality is not necessarily present in those typologies. Do you know the high priest doesn't even have to be a believer? The high priest might be dying and going to hell. As long as his dad was the high priest before him, he becomes the high priest on the basis of an earthly requirement. It has nothing to do with being saved. And Israel and their stewardship, they were the covenant nation. That was their stewardship towards the Gentile nations, whether they were saved or not. The Jewish people were the the steward people. So I think we lose track of that sometimes because we're so spoiled in the church age where in order to become a, a steward, in order to become a servant of God, you have to be saved. It's the only way to, to become a part of the body of Christ. Anyway, we'll, we'll have more of that, I'm sure, in some upcoming lessons. 
They need to offer sin offerings for their own behalf before they were able to offer sin offerings on behalf of the people. And as described here in verse 7 and verse 15, Moses said to Aaron, come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people. Then make the offering for the people that you may make atonement for them just as the Lord had commanded. All right, because the same thing, these priests, they're sinners too, just like the people they're serving. They are sinners in need of a Savior, just like the people uh, are sinners in need of a Savior. It's a big difference though with Jesus. When Jesus died and went to the cross, he didn't need first to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was without sin. He was the sinless Lamb of God. And so he could give a once and for all sacrifice for the people, for all of humanity, without requiring to give a sacrifice first for himself. And so as we read this here in Leviticus, we realize this is the basis for the statements that are made in Hebrews chapter 7, celebrating the glories of Jesus. As it says, it was fitting, appropriate, proper. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And even though he identified with us, even though the word became flesh, he walked a human walk, he he lived the life that he lived among us as a man, tested in all things as we are, yet without sin, to every degree that he identified with us, still at the end of the day, he was so far above. He was so holy. He was so sinless and perfect. And this is how God designed for our Redeemer to bring us to glory. So he's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those guys, those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once when he offered up himself. Jesus was the priest and Jesus was also the offering. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. The word of the law, the word of the oath, the uh, promise that he made in Psalm 110, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So uh, what a glory, okay? And, And to me it's so tragic, I think, that um, in church history and the unfolding of church history in the first early chapters, uh, the first centuries of church history, that uh, Christians in Rome decided that they wanted to invent a, uh, a replica of, of the Old Testament. And so they created a priesthood with robes and incense and sacrifices and the mass, if you will. And they uh, invented a calendar They invented the whole Advent calendar and the whole year of of feasts and festivals. None of that was in the New Testament. That was totally invented. And and trying to recreate, trying to make a New Testament replica of the Old Testament is insane. I almost said asinine, but it was Sunday morning. I won't say that. (laughs) Making a replica of something that was in itself a replica... The Old Testament, the, the tabernacle was a replica of the heavenly reality. We are the heavenly citizens functioning in the heavenly reality. Why would we create a replica of a replica? How dumb is that? Make a photocopy of a photocopy and it just, the, the quality gets worse every time. We serve in the heavenly realities. It's a glorious thing that we have. All right, back to Leviticus. 
And as far as the rest of this chapter goes, we're going to skim through it. I want to get to 9 and 10 and 11. Um, I mean, I want to get to 10 and 11. We're in 9 right now. Uh, so Aaron came near to the altar, slaughtered the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. His sons presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood, put some on the horns of the altar, poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. The fat and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver and the sin offering, we've been having fun with fat. All fat belongs to the Lord. Okay? Nobody eats the fat. It all goes to God. The flesh and the skin, however, he burned with fire outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering, the olah as we studied it. And Aaron's sons handed the blood to him and he sprinkled it around on the altar. They handed the burnt offering to him in pieces with a head offered up in smoke on the altar. Also washed the entrails, the legs, and offered them up in smoke with burnt offerings on the altar. They had to be washed first, the entrails and the legs. Then he presented the people's offering, took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, slaughtered it, made an offering for sin like the first, presented the burnt offering, offered it according to the ordinance, presented the grain offering, filled his hand with some of it. Remember, it was the handful that was the the memorial portion before the Lord. So filled his hand with some of it and offered it up in smoke on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he slaughtered the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons handed the blood to him and he sprinkled it around on the altar. As for the portions of fat from the ox and from the ram, the fat tail and the fat covering and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver, they now placed the portions of fat on the, on the breasts and he offered them up in smoke on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh Aaron presented as a wave offering before the Lord, just as Moses had commanded. We're not done. This is a long day, okay? It's a long chapter, all the detail, but it's here for our edification, it's here for our blessing. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And we highlighted this. There's a really a, a gap in the use of barak and baraka, bless and blessing. It's used repeatedly in Genesis. It's used repeatedly in, in Deuteronomy and following. But there is a real gap in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers where we don't have the, the, the verb barak to bless or we don't have the noun baraka, the blessing. It's really rare that we encounter it. We had it in Exodus when Moses blessed the people at the beginning of the, at the completion of the tabernacle. Now we have Aaron blessing the people lifted his hands toward the people, and he blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offerings and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. So understand, there is a power in these blessings. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. And, and when you state these things, okay, as the vested, anointed high priest of the, of the nation of Israel, those words have power. Not because you have power, but because God is using you in this capacity. Likewise, so too does a cursing. That's why we have to be so careful. Invoking the name of God in a curse. All right, so Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. This is the, the Shekinah glory. The word Shekinah doesn't appear in the Bible, but it's an Aramaic term that was used by the rabbis as they were commenting on the Torah. They called it Shekinah. It's the visible, tangible, uh, the, the, the physical universe representation of God's glory. And it is light, it is bright, it is powerful, it is deadly. And as the glory, the Shekinah glory 
stood before the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering, the portions of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. I don't blame them. <laughs> I, I'd be wondering what took you so long, you know. When the Shekinah showed up, I'd be down there. I mean, just how intimidating is that? How glorious is that to, to put deity in contrast with humanity? And then not only is it appearing before you, I think maybe it just takes a moment of shocked realization when you realize, wait a minute, I'm not dead yet. You know, how, how can I be in the presence of glory and still be alive? And then in that moment where you haven't quite realized that you're still alive, then the fire comes out and consumes the, uh, the offering here. And then, okay, look, time to fall on our face. We, we shouldn't be here. What, what are we watching this for? And how privileged are they? Okay? And, and don't ever, I mean, I, th- I think we, we minimize this and we need to stop. Okay? Uh, because, yes, if we're going to contr- compare Israel with the church, there's no comparison. And I wouldn't trade places with them any day of the week. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad I'm in the church age. I'm in the reality, the substance. I'm, I'm baptized in a personal union with Jesus Christ. I wouldn't trade the church age for, for Israel. But in, in drawing that contrast, we lose sight of the fact that the real contrast here is Israel compared to all the Gentile nations on the earth compared to the Canaanites, compared to the Egyptians, compared to the Babylonians, compared to every other people group, 70 people groups in Daniel in uh, Genesis chapter 10. In the table of nations, 70 people groups, the Gentile people groups, and none of them had the Shekinah glory living in their midst like Israel has in the uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so for a covenant nation to stand before the Lord to see that fire come forth is powerful. And they're going to be telling this. The ones that were there that day are going to be telling it. The ones that uh, you know were born too late and couldn't be there that day, um, they missed out. Okay, it's the ones that were there to see this and the testimony that they can offer uh, on those occasions. So Aaron's first sacrifice was not consumed by a natural fire, but the fire of God was used to make a very lasting impression. And these things happen on occasion, like in First Kings when Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And uh, it was not a normal fire because he'd soaked it with water. He was taunting the, the Baal prophets. He was taunting the, the, uh, the priests and prophets of Baal that couldn't get, couldn't get their fire lit. And then here comes this fire from God from heaven. And then Second uh, Chronicles 7, 1, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. So, you know, about a 400-year gap between uh, Moses and the tabernacle and Solomon and the temple. But the same procedure repeated. It was fire from heaven that consumed the sacrifice at the dedication of Solomon's temple. All right, so we have a very lasting impression. (laughs) How long-lasting? From Leviticus 9.24 to Leviticus 10.1. That's how long the lasting impression was. For Nadab and Abihu, not long at all. We got a little bit of white space. We got a paragraph heading, a chapter heading, and a pericope blurb. All right. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and, after putting fire in them, placed incense on it. We'll give them that idea, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. 
Okay? Now we studied this. We studied the, the pieces of furniture. We looked at all the layout inside the tent, outside the tent, in the courtyard. We saw that the, the bronze altar was overlaid with bronze, not overlaid with gold. The bronze altar was there, and that's where the death took place. That's where the sacrifice took place. That's where the fire was Okay, for those animal sacrifices. The other altar, the smaller one, was wood overlaid with gold. It stood before the veil. You didn't kill any animals there. And that's where the incense belonged. And the incense was a very special incense. It had a secret recipe. So secret it was not really secret, it was put in the Bible. But it was not a secret recipe, it was a unique special recipe. In fact, on pain of death, no one else was to replicate that incense formula. No other perfumer was trying to create a a temple uh, proximity type. Uh, It had to be unique. Only the altar of incense received only that incense. And so now here's Nadab and Abihu who are uh, winging it. They're, uh, They're throwing in their own little their own little twist. What gave them this idea? Why did they think it was appropriate to, to transgress the instructions they'd been given? They'd been given precise instructions, very detailed instructions, so much so that most of us got bored reading all of those instructions. But they, on pain of death now, are going to violate those instructions and they're going to suffer these consequences. So, after putting fire in them, they placed incense on them, which is what made the fire strange, offered the strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. The term strange fire, it's like strange woman. It's like there's phrases in the Old Testament that are talking about the strange woman is the, is the harlot, is the, is the one that's leading Israel into idolatry. But here's the strange fire. And so... Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You know, we had just seen a glorious thing where fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the offerings, and that was glorious. And the people worshipped and they bowed down, and that was good. But here the fire comes out and consumes the, the offerers, the priests. And it's, I don't know, I mean, I think it's pretty precise. It doesn't exactly say where Aaron and Moses were on this occasion, or Eliezer or Ithamar. My suspicion is they were all present as well. Everybody was functioning on this day, and the whole priesthood is present. Some Levites are on hand. Everybody's watching this. And the fire was such that it was so precise that it didn't hit Moses or Aaron, didn't hit Eliezer or Ithamar. But boy, it got Nadab and Abihu just like that. You think, come on, for a first offense, can't we, can't we just pull them aside and give them some coaching? Give them, you know, put a little, put a letter of reprimand in their file, and then, you know, HR has to run, you know, you've got to run this past HR where they get a warning, and then, you know, no. First, first offense. This is how serious that it is. And and any time God is launching a new program, the 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 first uh, the 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 forerunners of that program, the very first participants, it's a serious deal. So, some people suspect maybe they used a common fire instead of coals from the brazen altar, or that they used the wrong incense on the altar of incense. That's, I think, what the text indicates, uh, that they uh, used an incense of a different form. Um, Much of the incense that the pagans used was very intoxicating. And it's like, you know, peyote and some of the other drug-induced things that, that the ancient world learned about when they could burn certain things and and huff it and, and get put in different emotional states, spiritual states. 
whatever the case, I don't know, maybe they were trying to get high or whatever they were doing, but they mixed the wrong kind of incense and they paid the price. Fire came out of the Holy of Holies and consumed Nadab and Abihu immediately. The example is set immediately and the onset of a new age. See, he's got to, he can't let this slide. This has, he's got to make the example right here, right now on day one so that the tone is set. Kind of like a boot camp. On day one, there's no mercy anywhere. Every tiny little thing, the angry men in the brown hats are coming down hard on uh, every little thing. But you might recall the beginning of the church age in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, and they sold a piece of property and they brought the, the money in and then they lied about it. They claimed that they had brought the whole amount when really they'd skimmed part of it for themselves. And there's nothing wrong. Skim whatever you want. Keep, keep 90% of it and give 10%. Whatever you want to do. Keep the whole thing and don't give any to, to God. That's your business. It's your house. But don't sell it and then lie about it and act like you're some kind of you know, sacrificial Barnabas or something showing up with this, this amount that as if it's everything, because it's not everything. You're lying to God and God's not going to stand for that. And so when you read it in, in Acts chapter 5, they get blasted right there. Okay? And uh, I think that, that's consistent with what we have with Nadab and Abihu. It's, the, it's day one of a new dispensation. It's day one of a new, not a dispensation in Israel's case, but at least a new operation, a new system as they're functioning under law. Remember, judgment does begin with the house of the Lord. 1 Peter 4.17, judgment begins with the household of God. If it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? God is always top-down in the chain of command. He's always in that hierarchical operation. And so the priests have a stricter judgment than the, the Levites, and they have a stricter judgment than the common people of Israel. Same thing in the church age. Let not many of you become teachers, beloved. You will incur a stricter judgment. The judgment is always top-down in the chain of command. That, that strict accountability Nearness to God requires holiness. The more near, the more holy. <laughs> okay? I mean, seriously. Leviticus 10.3, Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And so if you're going to contrast the priests with the people, the priests are the ones that come near. They come near on behalf of the people. They come near to represent the people. They come near to serve the people. And in coming near, they have the stricter judgment, the accountability. Not, not as if, you know, the random guy out there in the crowd is going to get away with idolatry, but it is a, the, the judgment is not as firm, not as quick, not as severe. It will still be honored before all the people. So Aaron kept silent. What can Aaron say? His firstborn and his secondborn son just got blasted by God. What can you say? You're going to complain that it wasn't right or it wasn't fair? They're you know, they're toast. They're incinerated in the uh, process there. So Moses called also to Mishael and Elzaphon, the uncles of Aaron's uncle, uh, the sons of Aaron's uncle, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. See, Aaron can't bury these kids. He cannot touch a dead body. He, um, and his brothers can't. They've got to maintain their ceremonial holiness. So now it's Uncle Uziel and his kids. They're going to come. They're Levites. They're of the tribe of Levi. They're, they're tasked with temple service. 
in the assistant capacity to the priests. So they came forward, carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. So Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. You think he's got their attention? <laughs> you think Eleazar and Ithamar are, are you know, yeah, they, their ears are, are perked up and they're, they're paying attention. Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, that you will not die, that he will not become wrathful against the congregation. They can't even grieve. Normal human grief with a, at a funeral with the death of a loved one, they are banned. Show no grief because these brothers were idol worshipers. These brothers were evil. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. So the nation of Israel will have the weeping and the grieving and the gnashing of teeth on their behalf. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting or you will die. So you're on duty. You can't even leave work. You can't leave work early. You're on duty. Continue to serve as this priesthood is taking Israel into the beginning of their uh, priestly duties. So they did, according to the word of Moses. All right, let me get to verses 8 and following. Levites were tasked to bury Nadab and Abihu, while Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar continued on in their spiritual service and responsibility. And I think this is, uh, Jesus even addresses this when he tells the man, follow me and allow the dead to bury the dead. But the pattern comes under Mosaic law. With the death of Nadab and Abihu there in Leviticus chapter, chapter 10. All right. Other details. Leviticus 10, verses 8 through 20. The divine discipline upon Nadab and Abihu provides opportunity for instruction. So there's going to be a follow-up class. There's going to be the opportunity to speak to Aaron and to his sons to make it extra clear what's expected of this priesthood and how it is that they can serve the Lord in this way. First item is not to get drunk. (laughs) Maybe that's what was happening to, to Nadab and Abihu. Were they drunk? Is that what motivated them? So instruction against drunkenness while on duty. The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come in to the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. Notice it's not a 100% ban. It's not a teetotal command. But while on duty, when they put on their priestly robes and they go to work in the, in the tabernacle, all right, they can't be drinking, either wine or strong drink. A perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean. So there's no ban. There's no ban on um, non-priests from drinking. You know, somebody from the tribe of Reuben or the tribe of Benjamin or whatever. There's no ban against alcohol. The ban is against drunkenness. Same thing in the New Testament. The sin is drunkenness. The sin isn't drinking. If so, then Jesus was a sinner because Jesus drank, drank wine. But make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. And of course, it will come about in Israel's history, we read about it later in the Old Testament, that the prophets are drunk, the priests are drunk, they're all reeling with strong drink and uh, turning their religious offices into uh, debauchery, turning it into occasions to, to um, 
you know, start picking up women and all the stuff they're doing there. So, instructions against drunkenness while on duty. Instructions on eating the sacred food in verses 12 through 15. Moses said to Aaron and to his surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, right? The new firstborn and secondborn son of the uh, sons of Aaron. Take the grain offering that is left over from the Lord's offerings by fire and eat it unleavened beside the altar for it is most holy. It is most holy. And we saw last hour that these phrases, most holy, are the, uh, the holy of holy languages that are, that are there. So if you missed that last hour, we should be able to spot it here as well. There it is. Kodesh Kadashim. Kodesh Kadashim. Holy of holies. Most holy. And this is the, uh, the feast that they get to have. And how much greater than uh, you know, the manna that the other folks were picking up, these guys were eating the holy of holies, the, the grain offerings that had gone before the Lord in fire. The breast of the wave offerings, other eating instructions. This is making me hungry. <laughs> it's going to get worse too because in Leviticus 11, what do we got coming up in Leviticus 11? Clean and unclean animals, the things you can eat, the things you can't eat. All right, so we have these instructions here. Uh, verse 16 to 18, Moses was displeased with Aaron's lack of capacity to feast on what the Lord had provided. This is a little bit of a rebuke here too. Uh, verse 16, Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering and behold, it had been burned up. So he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. Why did they let that burn up? Why did they let the whole thing be consumed? It wasn't supposed to happen. Why did you not eat from the sin offering at the holy place? It is most holy. He gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. There's these elaborate procedures with the scapegoat and the other goat, and, and the procedures are there for a reason. And you just were negligent? You weren't paying attention? You let it cook a little too long or what have you, Okay. Behold, since its blood has not been brought inside to the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary just as I commanded. Now Moses, uh, Aaron's going to offer a, uh, an explanation though. So at first blush, this seems like a problem. But Moses will accept the answer Aaron gives. But Aaron spoke to Moses, Behold, this very day they presented their sin offering and the burnt offering before the Lord, when, these, when things like these happened to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? So he says, he explains as an explanation, right? Not, not a weasel excuse. The last time this happened was at the golden calf. And Moses was rebuking Aaron for creating the golden calf. And Aaron had the dumbest excuse he ever heard of, worse than the dog ate my homework, was he threw the gold in the fire and this calf came out. And Moses knew that was ridiculous. But here Aaron has, this, um, Aaron has this explanation, and particularly with the loss of his sons and these things. And he said he didn't have the stomach for it. Okay? Didn't have the stomach for it. If I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? And he just gives it back to Moses for Moses' own consideration. And when Moses heard that, it seemed good in his sight. See, in so much of what we do, even in grace, of course, in the New Testament, how does it seem when we're living the Word of God, when we're growing, when we're learning? 
if there's no explicit command, yes, it's for the priest. Does that mean they have to eat it? Or might they choose to not enjoy a privilege because of something else, some other factor that's impacting their soul on that particular day? Anyway, it seemed good in his sight, and that's how the chapter ends. So the Lord doesn't rebuke Moses saying, come on Moses, smack your brother and get him right. None of that happens. Aaron says, this is what it seems to me, and Moses says, all right, that's what it seems to me, and on they moved. And I I like that. I like the fact that even with all of the details of the the commands of what we have, if in fact there was uh, application to be made, these men had the faith to do that. I hope that makes sense, okay? Not in flagrant rebellion, not in open defiance, certainly not Nadab and Abihu didn't have a, a reason to offer the strange fire that they offered. But Aaron had an offer, had, a, had the, the uh, leeway, the, uh, the grace discretion to not enjoy a blessing that he could have otherwise enjoyed. So he chose not to. And that's where that was left. All right, which gets us now to the food chapter. Leviticus chapter 11. A holy nation was taught to eat in a holy manner. And much of what we have to deal with in here, we don't want to get lost in the details. We don't want to get uh, wrapped up in... Some people are absolutely convinced that everything in this chapter is here for nutritional reasons based upon modern science and the modern understanding of the, uh, you know, the nutritional value, the physiological benefits of certain foods and the physiological... Uh, problems with other foods and and anything like that at all. There's nothing in here about uh, high blood pressure. There's nothing in here about uh, any of that, okay? Related to cholesterol or whatever else, you know. My last uh, checkup was awesome, by the way, on my cholesterol. And if he only knew my Pluckers membership and the things that happened there. Anyway. A holy nation ought to eat in a holy manner. And this is the entire point. If they want to grumble about not eating pork chops or whatever, if they want to grumble about bacon, whatever it is, it's not, the, the point isn't the bacon. The point isn't the, 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 the animal. The issue is Israel is different from the Gentile nations. They are a different people. They have a different calendar. They have a different worship structure. They have a different uh, everything. Even the clothes they wear. They have tassels to wear that Gentiles are never given. They, have, uh, they can't mix their fabrics as the Gentiles can. What's wrong with mixing fabrics? They're different. They don't do that. Okay? Just like circumcision. They're different from the Gentiles. And the food they eat is different than the Gentiles. Just for the sake of being different is part of, of the discipline. It's like, why can't Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because God said so. That's why. That tree is different. And so when God draws the differences, we say, yes, sir, and we abide by the differences. That's, it's what God has chosen and, uh, and all the rest. Okay, And if we want to start playing games with it, if we want to start messing with it and saying, well, what if, you know, can I mix this? What if? It's, technically, it's not violating if I blend this, is it, right? Why do you want to? Why are you asking that kind of question? Why are you even asking that question in the first place? It kind of betrays your interest in defying the will of God, honestly. You're trying to find a way to approach the line without stepping over it. How close can you get to it? You really like playing with fire? 
All right. Old Testament dietary restrictions for the Jewish people is sometimes considered odd by modern readers. It ought not seem odd at all, given that God's first ever law given to humanity was a dietary restriction. (laughs) You know? I mean, fundamentally, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So why do we think these dietary restrictions are strange? Also, the distinction between clean and unclean was known as early as the days of Noah. Remember, he took clean animals on the ark so he could sacrifice them after the flood. They knew about clean and unclean animals centuries before Leviticus was ever written. The Gentiles knew about it before there even were any Jews. The concept of what's clean versus unclean was appropriate for those that were approaching God, even in the dispensation of the Gentiles. This was true. There were clean animals and unclean animals even when they couldn't eat any of the animals. Even though humanity's diet was strictly plant-based. Remember the very beginning, from Adam and Eve all the way down to the flood, it was plant-based diet. After the flood is when they were given the animals to eat as well. Genesis 1, verses 29 and 30. Once the animals were added to humanity's diet, no animal prohibitions were ever given. Notice they get off the ark, the flood is complete, and God says, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So that's everything. That doesn't distinguish between clean and unclean. That doesn't say don't eat pork. For the Gentiles before Israel, anything that moves... Any animal you can eat just like the plants. Okay? Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. The stipulation being the, uh, the perversion of consuming blood was, was out of bounds because of the doctrine of what, what the blood represents. So, the idea of unclean animals that affect... So the Gentiles, no one understood clean animals for sacrifice and unclean animals inappropriate for sacrifice. He knew the clean versus unclean for sacrificial purposes, but then once, uh, once they were allowed to eat the animals, it didn't matter whether it was a clean animal or an unclean animal. They could eat whatever they wanted. And the Gentiles still to this day can eat whatever they want. And of course in the church age, we're neither Jew nor Gentile. We can eat whatever we want. We, it's sanctified by means of the Word of God in prayer. All right, rule of thumb. This governs the entire chapter, at least for the land animals. If it has a split hoof and chews the cud, it may be eaten. So Leviticus Leviticus 11, verses 2 and 3. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs, and chews the cud among the animals that you may eat. Okay, so that's the rule of thumb. And it's going to be explained in the following verses and then there'll be some stipulations coming in uh, for some of these other animals. But that's the basic rule of thumb. By the way, what's a cud? (laughs) Again, if uh, if that's not a word that you use on a daily basis, then uh, feel free to right-click it and uh, select the word cud and then pull it up in a dictionary. You should have several dictionaries there. Ah, see, chewing the cud. Ruminate. Some animals are called ruminates, and the verb to ruminate means you're chewing the cud. One of the marks of cleanness in the quadruped given in Leviticus 11.3 and Deuteronomy 14.6. 
And uh, that doesn't exactly define it or give the... All right, basically they swallow twice and they chew. Um, <laughs> they swallow the first time, it goes into one stomach, they barf it back up, they chew it some more, it goes into the other stomach. Okay, I'm not hungry anymore, by the way. This should ruin, <laughs> ruin my whole appetite. There are some neat dictionaries, though, that really get gruesome when they define this stuff. Here we go. Cud. Partly digested food returned from the first stomach of ruminants to the mouth for further chewing. Okay? But see, the concept is beautiful. It is, I love this concept. And I want all of us. So, so a message has gone forth. You're eating here today. But don't stop today. You know what I want you guys to be doing tomorrow? Chew on it some more. Chew on it some more. If there's a doctrine and you think, oh, I'm not really sure about that. Well, when you get home, barf it up a bit and chew on it some more. And, and when you're chewing on the doctrine, here's the thing, it's glorious. <laughs> All right, well, we can have some fun with that too. See, right away, I mean, this is making Leviticus, we're learning to love Leviticus. It's rising through the ranks. I don't think it's 65 anymore. I think it's, it's risen up a little bit. So that's the rule of thumb. Camels are excluded. Who wants to eat a camel anyway? They stink. Rock badgers, rabbits, Although they chew the cud, they do not have the split hoof. So you've got to be careful. They've got to have both requirements must be met. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof. The camel, even though it chews the cud, it doesn't divide the hoof, so it's unclean. Both requirements have to be true. Likewise, the shafan. What's a shafan? Footnote. A small, shy, furry animal, Hyrax syriacus, found in the peninsula of Sinai, northern Israel, the region around the Dead Sea. King James calls it a coney. The original 1977 NASB called it the rock badger. But the 95 update to the New American Standard Bible calls it the shafan. The new New American Standard Bible, 2020 edition, which I just bought the other day, There we go. Calls it the the rock hyrax. So that's another change they made in the 2020 New American Standard. Honestly, I am not liking it. I, I can't see myself adopting it anytime soon. I think I'll stick with the 95 update. After 6,300 sermons, I don't think I'm going to switch anytime soon to something I'm not comfortable with. All right. Camels are out of bounds. Rock badgers are out of ground, out of bounds. Rabbits. What's wrong with rabbits? Can we eat rabbits? Rabbits are good. Rabbits are tasty. Kevin's raising rabbits. There's, there's, uh, it, it chews the cud, but it doesn't divide the hoof. It's unclean to you. And the pig, break my heart. No ham, no bacon, no pork chops. Although it divides the hoof, Thus, making a split hoof, it does not chew the cud. It's unclean to you, okay? And don't even try to combine a rabbit with a pig and blend that together. You can't take the hoof part and the cud part and... No. 
shall not eat their flesh nor touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Even just touching a dead rabbit, a dead, uh, a dead pig, a dead any, if the animal itself is unclean, don't touch it, living or dead. Or you become unclean in the ceremonial uh, realities of this. If it has a paw, no pawed animal, so cats, dogs, bears, etc. That's, that's down in verse 27. We'll get to that here in a bit. Unclean animals could not be eaten, nor their dead bodies even touched. Then we get to the seafood. Rule of thumb for seafood. Fins and scales are good. <laughs> fins and scales. These you may eat, whatever is in the water. All that have fins and scales. Now, it's a little bit, of course, awkward that they're getting this instruction while they're in the desert. But they won't stay in the desert forever. They're going to have opportunity when they settle the promised land. All right, They're going to have the River Jordan. They're going to have the, the Sea of Galilee. They're going to have the Mediterranean. Plenty of uh, seafood available for the Jewish people. So whatever is in the water, all that have fins and scales, those in the water, in the seas, or in the rivers, you may eat. But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales, and that's a lot, among all the teeming life of the water, among the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you. This is not a weak adjective. This is powerful. Detestable. They shall be abhorrent to you. This is the language of an abomination, the language of something detestable. It stinks. You want nothing to do with it. Detestable and abhorrent. You may not eat of their flesh and their carcasses you shall detest. Whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is abhorrent to you. So, rule of thumb for seafood, fins and scales are good. This would rule out shellfish, lobsters, crabs, oysters, eels, etc. Okay? Again, not for the church age. You feel free. You can leave here today, go get lobster or whatever, whatever you want. You're not under Mosaic law. Then we have the birds. It's interesting. There's no rule of thumb for, but, for birds. No rule of thumb for good birds. Every, there are 20 prohibited birds. And uh, if you don't make the bad list, then it's presumed to be acceptable. And some elsewhere in the Bible are very explicitly known to be clean birds. So uh, we understand doves, pigeons, quail, sparrows, that they're described elsewhere as being either sacrifices or meals or uh, clean in, in some other way. But there are 20 prohibited birds. The eagle, like my necktie, I like eagles. They're, they're glorious, they're, they're majestic when they're soaring through the air, but fundamentally they're scavengers, they're buzzards, they're, they eat dead things. So don't eat any eagles or vultures or buzzards. The kite, the falcon, every raven in its kind, the ostrich and the owl and the seagull and the hawk of its kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the great owl, the white owl, now we've got to be honest, how many owls are there? Okay, And in some respects, Hebrew scholarship is still working to try to identify many of these animals. And uh, the New American Standard has fewer owls than the King James. There's a lot of owls in the King James. I think it was the, rule, I think it was the, the default when, in 1611 when they couldn't figure out what kind of bird it was. They just called it some kind of an owl and, and moved on. You know. Anyway, so yeah, we've got the great owl, the little owl, the white owl, the pelican, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron, the hoopoe, and the bat. Also there's a question, did, would they really have even known about the ostrich in the Middle East? In the, in the, you know, the Bible says they did. 
skeptics that think that they wouldn't have, but were they there? Do they know? All right. Rule of thumb for insects. And this is really gross. I mean, honestly. Pretend for a moment you're not a 21st century American, okay? I mean, around the world, insects are eaten to this day in great numbers in all kinds of places. I almost had some in Africa, and thankfully, Steve and I chickened out. We, uh, we dared each other to do it, and, uh, and then we, we both forgot simultaneously. So the very next day, Steve looked at me and said, we, you know what we forgot? And I said, yeah, sorry about that. But crickets and locusts and grasshoppers, they're, they're great. Rule of thumb for insects, jumping insects are good, including locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers, okay? So if, it's, if it jumps, have fun, okay? All other flying or creeping insects are bad. So the winged insects that walk on all fours are detestable to you. Yet these you may eat among all the winged insects which walk on all fours, those which have above their feet jointed legs with, with which to jump on the earth. And you can really tell. When I was a kid, I was capturing grasshoppers and ripping the legs off, and, and you could tell the, the jointed legs that they had there. These you may eat, the locust and its kind, the devastating locust and its kind, the cricket and its kind, the grasshopper and its kinds. But all other winged insects which are four-footed are detestable to you. By these, moreover, you will be made unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses becomes unclean until evening. Whoever picks up any of their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Now keep in mind, these are the clean and unclean animals, permitted to eat, not permitted to eat. Stop thinking of it in terms of sin. Oh, it's a sin if I eat bacon. Okay, No, it's unclean. And it makes you unclean. Stop thinking... Stop thinking of 1 John 1, 9 and confessing your sins and being in fellowship or out of fellowship. I think the biggest hang-up we have for Leviticus is we can't stop thinking about in fellowship or out of fellowship. We just got to think about ceremonially clean or ceremonially unclean because that's the distinction. And, and only the ceremonially clean can function within the covenant nation of Israel on the Sabbath on the, fe- the feast days, at Passover, on the holidays, on any of the special sacrifices that are offered, you would be excluded as unclean. Just like a leper. Just like, um, you know, the unvexed today and unmasked. Leper, outcast, unclean. You cannot participate. And it's not a sin in fellowship, out of fellowship, spirituality versus carnality issue. If that's the we gotta dump that analogy from our thinking when relating to the clean versus the unclean. Because some of the things that make you unclean would be surprising. All right. So yeah, here's some more on the animals that uh split the hoof or chew cud and then walking on paws. Nothing that walks with paws. And um Swarming things, the mole and the mouse and the great lizard and its kind, the gecko, the crocodile, the lizard, the sand reptile, the chameleon. So they're all unclean. Those reptiles and lizards and swarms and and rodents. Who wants to eat vermin anyway? Jeepers. And the gecko. (laughs) 
you know. All right. These are to you the unclean among the swarming things. Whoever touches them when they are dead becomes unclean until evening. Also, anything on which one of them might fall when they are dead becomes unclean. So you find a mouse, a dead mouse in your in your furnace. You know, it's the furnace is unclean. Or, or your furniture, your bed, your clothing, whatever it may be, whatever touches these things. Earthenware vessels, smash it. Smash the vessel? I mean, come on. Can I just wash it? No, smash it. Get a new vessel. The holy people is going to stay holy before the Lord. All right. Well, it's a long chapter. Bottom line, a holy people. What did I leave off? Vermin? Yes. Rule of thumb for other vermin, they're all bad, including mice, lizards, snakes, and crocodiles. These vermin also make clothing and cooking items unclean if they are found in them. Bottom line, a holy people under law has a holy diet under law. What you eat, what you wear, what you do, uh, occupations. For example, how are you, how are you going to be a tanner if you can't touch these, these dead animals that require you to touch? And, and, and there's several occupations that aren't even possible without touching these unclean animals. Other studies like that come up. Keep in mind, this is Israel. This is not the church. We're a holy people under grace. We have a holy diet under grace. 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5. And some of the legalism comes in and tries to take grace believers and put them under a replica of Mosaic law, a facsimile, uh, an imitation of, of something that we were never under in the first place. The hypocrisy of liars seared with their own consciences with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage say you have to be a lifelong celibate if you're going to be a priest. What's that? We're not designed to do that. Forbidding marriage. Advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Say, you've got to have fish on Friday. Why? Because we said so. Well, wait a minute. Where's that in the Bible? Abstaining from certain foods or drinks. God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. If you're thankful for it, if you like it, if you want it, praise God. Enjoy it. You know, if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. Okay? If you can't eat it with thankfulness, then don't eat it. Eat what you want to eat. Remember, the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking. It's righteousness. It's the reality that we have in the church age. Uh, Acts chapter 11 is when we have the explicit uh, abrogation of the dietary laws as Paul, as Peter is getting this doctrine from the Lord. And you can read through that, verses 5 through 18. And as you read through that, notice the Lord is giving clear instructions that it's the dietary restrictions that are being abrogated. Nothing at all in here is, is abrogating the sexual perversions from Leviticus. Okay? But you will encounter people to this day that will tell you that homosexuality is now in bounds, that all of those perversions from Leviticus were all set aside, and they'll try to use this as their principle. That, well, do you eat bacon? As if somehow me eating bacon gives them license to fornicate with homosexuals. Okay? 
Acts 11 abrogates the dietary restrictions for the spiritual reasons that it does to church-age believers in grace, and it has nothing else to say about any of the other holiness items in the book of Leviticus. We've got to be clear on that. Yep, Galatians 2.22, James had some hypocrisy in that regard, struggled with eating the things with the Gentiles when the, when the uh, Jews came around. The principle of holiness is that we have become partakers of the divine nature. I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, thus you shall be holy for I am holy. They were called to be a holy people because he redeemed them politically. We are called to be a holy people because he has placed us in Christ. What else would we be but holy? We are the holy people in Christ. We have become partakers of the divine nature. It is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. By these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You're saved by grace through faith. Now walk in a walk of holiness. Why would you walk any other walk? This is why God the Father disciplines us. Hebrews 12.10 Earthly fathers discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God the Father disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. When we start to drift in our holiness measure, when, when the, the holiness element is diminished, God says, I know how to ramp that back up again. It's His divine discipline in our lives. All right, well, that's Leviticus chapter 11. We're going to uh, adjourn for our lunch break. This afternoon we have two more sessions. Day 53. We'll start with chapter 12 and get us partway through chapter 14. Dealing with moms having babies. You don't sin when you have a baby, but you are unclean. And then we have um, second session this afternoon, the Day of Atonement. That's the rest of chapter 14 and it covers chapter 15 and chapter 16. So it's a huge, huge chapter in Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the blessings we have to assemble together. I thank you for the through the Bible format, Father, and it is. It is uh, a lot of teaching, Father, but you're so gracious to take us step by step, chapter by chapter, a little here, a little there. Father, we just thank you and praise you that we have this blessing to be reading the Bible seven days a week, to be receiving instruction seven times a week, Father, to be growing by leaps and bounds. And we're just so thankful, Father. We have, this is our eighth Sunday, seven completed weeks, 45 more to go. You have been faithful each step of the way. We thank you for that faithfulness. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.